Secret Service agent, a man who was in charge of the Dallas office of the Secret Service, yells back to these other agents, take off the bubble top. Then the president is shot. Former PBS TV news anchor Jim Lehrer. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. For many years, Jim Lehrer was the co-anchor of the PBS McNeil Lehrer News Hour. Very popular, won many awards. But Jim Lehrer was also a very accomplished novelist. He wrote a series of books in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Over the years, I interviewed Jim Lehrer almost a dozen times. Always found him to be a sweet and gentle man, always a kind word for everybody, great stories to tell especially in 1992, when I interviewed him for a memoir that he'd written called A Bus of My Own. And in the interview you're about to hear, he explains what the title means, A Bus of My Own, but he also has a couple of other stories, including a chilling story that took place in Dallas, Texas, on November 22, 1963. So here now my 1992 interview with Jim Lehrer. Bill, is a, I had a heart attack in 1983, December of 83, and um, I did a uh, documentary for PBS called My Heart, Your Heart, about heart, about my experience, but about heart attacks generally, and had a terrific response to it. In fact, more response than anything I've ever done on television or ever will, ever will do. And I, in the back of my mind then, I thought, well, maybe someday I would do a book about it. And so I decided to do that. And then... As I got into the writing of the book, um, my editor at Putnam, Neil Nyron, kept saying, yes, but what about your experiences as a reporter in Dallas? Hey, what about uh, this Marine Corps thing? What about uh, this and what about that? And I kept saying, okay, well, let me put in a little, uh, little background here, a little context there, and I just kept adding it and adding it, and before I was finished, it was no longer a heart attack book. And um, it was a. It's a. It's still not a. It's not an autobiography by any means. That sounds. That that would be a very pompous thing to do, uh, in my opinion. It's a. It's a kind of a memoir where it's a selective memoir. Various things in my life that I found that were that interested me and I thought might interest others. And um, it covers all kinds of all kinds of things, including the heart attack. If you had shown us just the heart attack as you had originally planned, it would have been like looking through a family album and seeing a snapshot and you trying to tell us all about that snapshot without us having known the pictures that went, came before it, the pictures that came after it. That's very true, Bill. And that's what I realized as I was working on it. And uh, that's why it got, got out of hand. <laughs> but we, the reader, are the richer for it. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Why did you call it a bus of my own? Well, buses have always been a big deal to me. Uh, that's uh, in personal terms, just in p for personal reasons. My father worked in the business all his adult life. I grew up in the bus business um, uh, with with him. Uh, we had a little bus company in uh, Iran, started a little bus company in the summer of 1946 in Kansas called Kansas Central Lines. It went broke almost uh, a year to the day later. And uh, I was 12 years old at the time. That was a very wrenching, uh, at the same time, exhilarating experience. Uh, and one of those experiences in life that left uh, a huge imprint on my soul and elsewhere in my, uh, in my being. And, uh, I, in fact, I wrote a book about it 
that that one year the bus line back in 75 called uh, we were dreamers but at any rate buses have always been there when i went to jun- i went to jun- a little small junior college a little small a small junior college in south texas you can clean that up bill right <laughs> okay um went to a small junior college in south texas um in the 50s and i in the at night i worked in the bus depot the tra- continental trailways bus depot and uh, as a ticket agent for two years and um Anyhow, I and then later in life, after my father died, my my uh, dad died in 1970. For reasons that my family still would like for me to explain, I started collecting old bus memorabilia and uh, bus depot signs and ca- drivers' cap badges and little antique toy buses and all of that. And for some strange reason, when I was recovering from the heart attack, I got it into my head that maybe I ought to have a real bus. And so I bought one. It's a 1946 flexible clipper that uh, the bus gods wanted me to have because it's in pristine condition on the inside. Somebody had kept it in a garage for 15 years, and it was not an inside interior. The interior of the bus was terrific. So I now own that bus, and that is my very own bus. There's an irony there. If Kansas Central had had that 46 flexible in 46, Kansas Central might have lived on for many, many years. Exactly. And I talked to my dad about that as I drive that little bus of mine up those road, those little roads in West Virginia. And I say, you know, well, Pop, finally, we got it. A little late, but, we go, <laughs> but we've got it. That's right. But, you, but again, to put things in context, you can't understand the, the earliest beginnings of, of uh, how you uh, first, when you first met a reporter in a, in a, in a bus station. Here's, you know, the, 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 the perceptive reader will say, aha, uh-huh, that's when the bug bit. Mm-hmm. That's what led him into this exciting world of journalism. Well, it was part of the bug. I got many bites. Uh, <laughs> the first bites came um, uh, in Beaumont, Texas, when I was in high school and uh, discovered that uh, I was not going to be Doak Walker and I wasn't going to be Pee Wee Reese. Uh, uh, and so I love sports, and a teacher, high school English teacher, told me that I wrote well. I put the two together when I realized that there were sports these people called sports writers who were coming to our baseball games and our football games and they were being paid money to go to athletic events and then they wrote stories and the whole thing just hit me one day when I was about 17 that that's what I wanted to do and from then on including when I was working at the bus depot in junior college I mean it was always there and uh, there was this uh, reporter for the Victoria Advocate which was the daily newspaper there in Victoria, Texas a man named Stix Trahala who rode the bus and I got to know him, uh, and he uh, he told me all kinds of stories, and he and I experienced some things together, and uh, it just locked it in for me uh, uh, forevermore. What did the Marines teach you, besides uh, never correcting the drill instructor's pronunciation of your name? The Marines taught me that, um, taught me responsibility, that um, the Marines have a way of making you responsible for things that uh, you have no way, no, no reason in the world to be responsible for just because somebody gave you that responsibility. And to realize uh, you, have re- you have a responsibility for other. I was a uh, platoon leader, an uh, infantry platoon leader, and I suddenly, at the age of 23 years old, at the age of 23, was responsible for everything, the care and feeding of 40 grown men, not grown... Uh, in the uh, there were a few of them that were older than me, but they were all either my age or right in there, and uh, I had responsibility for them, and I learned uh, a lot of things about uh, 
what makes people, uh, what causes people to do things, and uh, what being responsible really means. I also um, learned about the melting pot. The kind of, the the um, uh, once you have shared a difficult experience with people um, because you had to, and it wasn't a voluntary situation. You uh, once you've shared that kind of a kind of experience. It removes all the cliches from you. I, in fact, I even say in the book that that the kinds of people that I met and worked with in the Marine Corps were just about all the kinds of people there are. And uh, somebody says, uh, oh, yeah, well, uh, the, this guy, all he is is a left-handed uh, boom, 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 whatever. And I can say, yeah, I knew one of those in the Marine Corps. And once you know somebody like that in a difficult situation, it removes all the cliches from your thinking. And, uh, and racial terms and, uh, and all kinds of other terms. And um, I came out, I went in the Marine Corps as a punk right out of college. And uh, I came out of the Marine Corps and I was no longer a punk. Is it better, though, to be an ex-Marine than a Marine? Oh, you bet. It's not, it's not fun from day to day. It's, uh, it, it is a, uh, there's a lot of what they, a lot of how they operate is through fear fear of screwing up and what happens to you when you when you do do so but it's um, uh, it there is this kind of shared experience that former marines have when i come when i meet somebody who's a former marine we there's this grin of recognition of a shared experience means a lot and as i say in the book a lot of it has to do my god we got through it and i'm no longer in you know because it's difficult from day to day but uh, i have i think i'm a better the bottom line is this bill I believe that I'm a better person and a better citizen, etc., because I was in the in the service. Uh, I feel very strongly that um, I don't mean this to be a political statement in any way, but I feel very strongly that that some kind of national service like that would be terrific for everybody if it was mandatory, if it was across the board. Everybody had not necessarily the military. Not every the military isn't for everybody, but there are. All, I think for socio sociological reasons in this country, we should do something like that. Forget all the other things, and they say, "Oh, well, it'd be very expensive." But to me, it would be cheap at the price. If you had a situation where people were forced to to learn about their fellow man and woman, it's possible in this country now to grow up black and uh, in a particular neighborhood and. And until you got out into the world, maybe at 25 or 30, never have to deal with a white person. And uh, the same thing with a white person. What this, and you don't have any frame of reference then. There are, them is always them. They're never us. And, and you've got to, we've got to figure out a way to get all of us in, in, under the umbrella of us. And that is one way of doing it. And uh, I would. Uh, I just would. I just think it's something that the country should should do. And uh, under any kind of political thing, it you know there are liberal programs for this. There are conservative programs for this. I couldn't care less. But I just believe I saw it with my own eyes. I experienced it myself, and I think it would be terrific. I need to fast forward just a little bit. So that with the t limitations of time, I'm going to skip ahead to 1963. Uh, you're with the Dallas Times Herald. Uh, correct me if right. I'm wrong. And you're right. I love Field. You're covering the arrival of President and Mrs. Kennedy, and you had you tell a story in the book. You had a uh, what turned out to be a uh, looking back on it, a fateful conversation with a Secret Service agent. Yes, I was on the phone to uh, my assignment that day was uh, 
was to cover the president's arrival, stay at Love Field until he was only going to be in Dallas a couple of hours or so. And our whole, it came right on our afternoon newspaper deadlines. The whole city staff was more or less involved in the visit by the president. My assignment was to cover his arrival, stay there at the airport until he left and cover his departure for our late editions. Just a few minutes before the plane was due to land in Dallas, uh, the rewrite man had an open telephone line and was right there by where the plane was going was to taxi up. The rewrite man went downtown said, do they have the bullet of the uh, the bulletproof uh, bubble top on the car? Because it had been raining that morning. There was some question about it. And he said, well, I, uh, I'd like to know now, so when I write the story later under pressure, I'll know whether the bubble top is on there. And I said, well, I'll go find out. So I put the phone down. The, the cars were on a ramp, kind of out of sight, back uh, back uh, over a few, uh, maybe 100 yards from where I was. I walked over there found a, and I saw the cars, the bubble top was on there, and there was a Secret Service agent, a man who was uh, in charge of the Dallas office of the Secret Service. I knew him because I was the regular federal reporter at the time, and I asked him, I said, you're going to leave the bubble top on, and he kind of looked at the sky, and he, and he yelled to one of the agents with a radio, and he said, uh, is it clear downtown? And the guy talks on the radio, and he says, yes, this guy, man, the agent I was talking to, his name was Soros, Mr. Soros, and he said, yes, Mr. Soros, it's clear downtown. So Mr. Soros yells back to these other agents, take off the bubble top. And then uh, the president is shot, and 12 hours later or so, I'm at the, at the uh, Dallas police station at Bedlam there, and um, I went, this was late at night, back, uh, there was an outer office where the, where the police chief's office was, and there were a bunch of men in there meeting, I didn't know who was in there. The door opened, and out came several, several people, including Forrest Soros, the Secret Service man, and um, he, uh, he saw me, we just kind of, you know, passed, he looked at me, and, and he looked, you know, he was just, he was a very much a, a distraught, fallen man, and uh, he looked at me and, and said, kind of whispered, you know, take off the bubble top. And, you know, he just kept walking. And as I say in the book, I, I just, you know, I wanted to say, oh, you know, Mr. Soros, it's all right, you know, it wasn't your fault, it wasn't our fault. But um, that is one of many, many stories, Bill. Everybody, there, there were hundreds of people who had little things like that, that... Um, were in that, that touched in some way on that visit to uh, to Dallas, and uh, um, that's just one of the stories. How come you haven't written your conspiracy theory book yet? Don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I've got two in the mail now in the last few days. Two more conspiracy theory or or those kinds of books. It's, that's a story that I don't think is ever going to go away. No. Um, let me again fast forward a, sure. a, a few years, if I may. I want to come back to what we opened with about your heart attack, the, the very serious episode in your life. We all deny that bad things happen to us. We don't want to think, hey, how that, that happens to some other guy. That a car accident, divorce, you know, my daughter tells me she's gay. That happens to other people. That'll never, ever in this world happen to me. Is that the way you felt? Exactly. I thought I was invincible. never occurred to me I would be sick. Never had been sick. And, uh, and this heart attack just wham, right out of nowhere. It knocked me out. Knocked me out uh, physically, but it also knocked me out psychologically, too, because I wasn't prepared for it. But um, looking back on it now, um, I think it was almost a blessing, Bill. I, it, uh, it, I was 49 years old. 
it was still young enough um, to realize what had happened to me. Uh, also, it wasn't it wasn't a heart attack. Uh, it was a it, it didn't kill me number one, uh, but in addition to that, it didn't do uh, such serious damage that I wasn't able to recover and continue to function. I had uh, bypass surgery uh, afterward, but but whatever. I am doing really well now, and as a result of that heart attack, I've changed the way I live, not only physically but otherwise, and um, I have uh, gotten my act together, and I've, uh, I'm living uh, the life that I should have been living before, and uh, it, there's no way to know, but I actually believe I'll, I'll probably live uh, longer now because of it, because I had the heart attack. We'll see. Former PBS TV anchor Jim Lehrer who passed away last week at the age of 85. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, another television icon from a little different era, a little bit earlier, Art Linkletter. Now, if you're of a certain age, Art Linkletter may have been as much a part of your life as your mom, because Art Linkletter had a daytime show called The House Party. My mom always watched it, maybe yours did too. I met him and interviewed him in 1988, and you'll hear that next time here on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.